It's just a matter of time before God unleashes the full fury of His wrath, His just wrath and anger against those who have abused His name and abused His Son and abused His Word. It's coming. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Why is persecution for Christians a part of the end times account? Is suffering for the sake of the gospel really necessary? Well, hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom Pennington brings us part eight of his current series, The Future According to Jesus. We're looking at Mark chapter 13 that focuses on Jesus' prediction of what will happen between the time of His returning to heaven and His eventual second coming. Scripture teaches us that in the last days, followers of Christ would face persecution from false religions and official secular authorities. In today's message, you'll hear the human and divine reasons behind persecution, as well as the three implications which apply to your own life and how to care for those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Let's join our teacher for more now on The Word Unleashed. Now in verse 13, Jesus summarizes what he's been describing about this persecution that as his followers will face. He says, you will be hated by all because of my name. That doesn't mean hated by every single individual, obviously. That means by men in general, regardless of, of their rank, as, as Hendrickson said, regardless of their rank or station or race or nationality or sex or age, indiscriminately, we will be hated by different categories of people. By the way, the tense of the Greek verb translated hated is really unusual. It means this will go on and on and on. They will keep on hating you. One commentator writing on this phrase, because of my name, writes this. I love this. It's going to happen because of my name. Here's what Lane writes. The abuse heaped upon the disciples is really intended for Jesus. And the disciples are persecuted only because they are identified with him. The lash laid on the back of a Christian was actually intended to strike the Lord. Can I encourage you? If you find yourself persecuted for your faith among your family, among your friends, the people you grew, up, you grew up with, maybe the people at work, you find yourself persecuted, understand it's not personal. It's really not about you. It's about their hatred of the truth, their creator who has every right to tell them what to do, and that you remind them of that reality because of my name. Notice the end of verse 13, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The second half of verse 13 is a wonderful promise. The one who remains loyal to Christ in spite of this intense persecution will be rescued physically and spiritually and will enter into God's own presence. It is a promise of what theologians call the perseverance of the saints. If you have come to genuine faith in Christ, God himself will preserve that faith through the most difficult and challenging circumstances. Your faith won't fail. I love 
what Jesus said to Peter. You remember? Jesus said to Peter, Satan has requested permission that he might sift you like wheat, but I will pray for you, or I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith fails not. We have an intercessor who intercedes on our behalf in the form of the Spirit within us, in the form of our Lord Himself and God the Father's presence, and He prays that our faith will not fail. If your faith is genuine, God's not going to let it fail. You may find yourself in the midst of persecution. Your faith isn't going to fail. It will endure. You will be rescued. Perseverance in the faith is always evidence of genuine saving faith. I love what Tertullian, the early church father, said. He said, go on, rack, torture, and grind us to powder. Our numbers increase in proportion as you mow us down. The blood of Christians is their harvest seed. That's how God has always worked. Out of the death of one Christian comes a spiritual harvest. Jesus tells us that one of the birth pangs that will mark the time from his life to the end is relentless, intense waves of persecution. It will come against us from false religion, from secular authorities, and even from personal relationships. Now, there's one other important sign that will mark all of human history, and especially as we approach the end. Jesus included it in the middle of his argument about persecution, but I want to treat it as a separate point because I think it is. Let's call it the global gospel. Go back to verse 10. Buried in the middle of that section on persecution is this statement. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. That really deserves a message all its own because every single word in that sentence is important. But I want you to notice the key word. It's the word first. That word goes back to verse 7 and the end. Jesus is saying, before the end comes, the gospel must be preached to all the nations. Now, in one sense, the gospel was preached to a lot of the inhabited earth in the lifetime of the apostles. You can read statements like that in Romans 1.5, Romans 1.8, Colossians 1.6, Colossians 1.23. You can read statements where the apostles talk about the gospel having gone to, to the ends of the world. They meant at that point the ends of the inhabited earth. But Matthew 24, 14, parallel passage, makes it clear that Jesus is talking here not about what happened with the apostles in the first century, but what must happen right before the end of the age. Listen to Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. This has to happen. And this will happen as well in increasing and intense waves. The gospel will be shared and preached until the end. The world itself will be reached. Not that everyone believes, but that the gospel is preached. There's something else in this statement as well, though. There's a promise. Jesus is giving us his promise that the gospel and the advancement of his kingdom could not, would not be stopped by persecution. Even the intense persecution, the gospel keeps marching on. You understand that this is our mission? This is your mission? 
It's a mission with each of our lives right where we are, with your neighbors and family and friends and coworkers. And for some of you, and my prayer is this, that God would raise up people from this church to take the gospel to the ends of the world. And he has. And my prayer is he'll continue. My prayer is that God would give you a, a heart and a passion to reach unreached peoples of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some of us, that's Christ's intention, that our mission would be somewhere else on this planet. But regardless, it's to bring the gospel to bear. So, the beginning of birth pangs. Jesus says throughout human history, there are going to be these relentless waves of birth pangs. In a sense, they will occur throughout human history, but when they occur throughout human history, what we've seen so far, they're not even the beginning of birth pangs. They're like Braxton Hicks contractions. But as we truly approach the end of human history and the second coming, all of these things will occur with much greater frequency and intensity. You want to know what these things look like when the end really comes, when birth pangs really start? Read Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to take you through that passage tonight. I just want to highlight this for you. Read it and look at how remarkable the resemblance is between Mark 13, the verses we've covered, 5 to 13, and the first five seals recorded in Revelation chapter 6. Let me just show you this. It's pretty remarkable. The first seal in Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2 there, corresponds with the passage here in Mark, and it describes a false peace promised by, guess who? Antichrist, a man promising to be the Messiah himself, who's going to solve the world's problems. The second seal that's uncovered there is also parallel to Mark's gospel. It describes worldwide war, An incredible war will take place. The false peace of the first horseman of the apocalypse is quickly shattered by a second horseman who takes peace from the earth. There's always been war, but this second horseman will usher in a time of unparalleled war. We're talking now about the period from the time the seven-year period of the tribulation begins till its midpoint. These five seals, which very much resemble what we've studied in the Olivet Discourse. So here's how it gets the most intense right at the end. This is when they're truly birth pangs. The third seal in Revelation 6 describes scarcity of food that comes from the after effect of war, famine. The fourth seal describes earthquakes and pestilence and death on a global scale. Death comes by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. In fact, the the epidemic described in Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, is so horrendous that burial can't happen immediately. There will be rotting corpses lying around, and from those rotting corpses, additional diseases will create new sources of death. Great earthquakes. And then the fifth seal, also comparable to what we've studied 
there will be martyrs of those who have put their faith and trust in Christ and divine judgment in response to that. Really remarkable. Remarkable the parallels between the first five seals of Revelation 6, 1 to 11, and what we've studied so far in Jesus' sermon. So while those events described in Mark 13, 5 to 13, occur in waves throughout human history, if you want to see what they look like in their most intense form, when the birth pangs really come, when the Braxton Hicks are over, read Revelation 6, 1 to 11. Those are the real birth pangs. Let me give you several things to consider. First of all, expect persecution. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it when people don't like you or hate you or insult you or ridicule you or eventually perhaps it becomes even more intense and violent than that. Don't be surprised by that. You remember the Beatitude? Look back at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 10. Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, if you live out the rest of the Beatitudes in your life, then you're going to be persecuted. But it's okay, because the kingdom of heaven is yours. You're in. Blessed are you when people insult you. Here are the different forms it can take. They insult you. They persecute you. They falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, don't be surprised. Expect persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It'll come from false religion. It'll come from secular governments and secularists, and it'll even come from family and friends. Don't be surprised. Secondly, we need to pray and care for those Christian brothers and sisters who are experiencing real persecution in other places in the world. You ever do that? You ever pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing physical torture and the threat of death because of their faith, you ought to. We're commanded to. Look at Matthew 25. You remember this at the, at the judgment, the judgment of nations as it's called, the end of the tribulation period. There's this judgment, and, and our Lord judges the people who are there. All nations will be gathered, those who've survived that that holocaust, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep on the, he'll put on his right, the goats on the left. And then notice what he says to those on the right. Here are the true believers. They're not saved by what they do. They evidence the reality of their salvation and their faith by how they live. Notice, come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That shows it was grace. It's not their activities that earned it. It was prepared for them before they were ever born. But here's how they manifested the grace of God in their lives. Jesus says to them, 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. Now watch this. I was in prison, and you came to me. He's talking about those who were in prison because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. And they'll respond, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. We need to care about them. But look at Hebrews 13. Here it's stated very explicitly. Hebrews 13, verse 3. As the writer of Hebrews finishes the great doctrinal section about Jesus Christ and comes to practical, everyday implications of that, he says this in, in Hebrews 13, 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Let me encourage you to make a regular part of your prayer our brothers and sisters who are truly suffering for their faith in the world today. If you don't know about that, there are sites, websites, and others where you can be exposed to that, where you can learn what's really going on. You understand that that's true, like in where the countries where the Arab Spring has happened. I was talking to a man last Sunday night who has served as a missionary for many years, most of his life, in one of the Middle East countries. And he was telling me just that. He said, you know, we think, oh, there's this wonderful wave of democracy sweeping the Middle East. He said, it's the worst thing for Christians you can imagine. Because under the control of even the dictators, there was some freedom from persecution. They could carry out their faith because most of those dictators were interested in themselves and their own lives of luxury, etc., and just keeping the peace so they could enjoy themselves. But as those dictatorships have fallen... Those in false religion can use the opportunity to inflict serious persecution on our Christian brothers and sisters. Pray for them. They're in hard places. A third implication or application of the text is don't mistake God's patience for indifference. Here we move to what's coming. Jesus says, listen, it is coming. This is what it's going to be. We live our lives, and you know what a lot of people do? They mistake that nothing's happened so far, nothing's happening now, with that must mean nothing's ever going to happen. Don't mistake God's patience for indifference. A couple of passages come to my mind. Romans chapter 2, God says judgment is coming. But look at 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 7. But by His word... The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. God's going to destroy them. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do you understand that right now, by God's word, this universe as we know it is continuing in existence, but it's continuing in existence because it is reserved for destruction and judgment. The destruction, not just of the planet, but notice the end of verse 7, the destruction of ungodly men. Wow. 
It's just a matter of time before God unleashes the full fury of His wrath, His just wrath and anger against those who have abused His name and abused His Son and abused His Word. It's coming. Verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. In other words, God's not in a hurry. He doesn't march by our timetable, but it is coming. Verse 9, Part of the reason it's delayed is the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason God's wrath is restrained for now is out of His patience. But don't mistake that for indifference. Clearly, one of the great reasons for the great tribulation is for God to pour out His justice and wrath against unrepentant sinners. You understand that? Listen to Revelation 6, verse 16. Those who were alive on the planet at that time, when God begins to unleash His fury, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? A number of years ago, I came across a quote by the great Puritan, Stephen Charnock, in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, listen to what he writes. Patience in man is many times interpreted, and truly too, as cowardice, a feebleness of spirit, and a lack of strength. That's how it looks in men. But it is not from the shortness of the divine arm that he cannot reach us, nor from the feebleness of his hand that he cannot strike us. It is not because He cannot level us with the dust, dash us to pieces like a potter's vessel, or consume us as a moth. He can make the mightiest to fall before Him and lay the strongest at His feet the first moment of their crime. Presume not on God's patience. You know not how soon His anger may turn his patience aside and step before it. It may be his sword is drawn out of his scabbard, his arrows may be settled in his bow, and perhaps there is but a little time before you feel the edge of the one and the point of the other. Do you know how few sands are yet to run in your glass? Are you sure that he that waits today will wait as well tomorrow? How can you tell but that God that is slow to anger today may be swift to it tomorrow. Those are sobering words, but they're so true. Don't mistake God's patience for indifference. And finally, thank God that for every believer, God's wrath has been completely satisfied. That impending doom and wrath that Jesus talks about in this passage It's not for us. In fact, I want you to finish with me by looking over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I love this passage. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. Paul writes, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. There's repentance and faith. You were saved. And to wait for His Son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. Underline this, underscore it, remember it, memorize it. Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. You and I who are in Christ will be rescued from the wrath that God himself will pour out on those who are his enemies. May we thank God that his wrath has been satisfied in Christ. During those six hours, one Friday, 2,000 years ago. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of The Future According to Jesus. Join us next time for part nine, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces The Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.